Okay, hello, good morning everyone. Um, thank you for joining our webinar today on workplace hygiene management during a pandemic. Uh, my name's Sarah O'Leary from MIOSH. Um, uh, before I introduce GreenCap uh, and Michael Taylor, um, I just want to say a little bit about the webinar software. Um, there is a Q&A panel at, uh, during the webinar or at the end, you can uh, put any questions there and we'll endeavor to answer them at the end. Um, if you want to have a, ask me a question directly, you could use the chat panel. We are going to record this webinar and later today we'll send out an email with the recording and the slides and also a podcast um, if that's easier for you to listen. So um, uh, basically, um, I just want to say a little bit about GreenCap. GreenCap assists businesses in managing risk and compliance by providing integrated expert services, online solutions and training across property, um, asbestos and other hazardous materials management, occupational hygiene and property risk, health and safety, health and safety management, contractor safety management, um, environment, contaminated land and environmental management and emergency management. Dr. Michael Taylor is a principal consultant um, at GreenPAC with an academic background in public and environmental health, microbial ecology and mycology. He has a research profile in the detection and spread of microbial, I hope I said that right, pathogens in soil, air, water and constructed environments and extensive experience in the translation of research results into accessible information for stakeholders and peers. So welcome today, Michael. We really appreciate your expertise and I'll hand it over to you now. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm hoping today to uh, talk a bit about uh, what we know um, about SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, um, and turn some of that back-end information into useful um, practices and, and protocols that you can actually apply um, to protect yourself and protect others in the workplace. Um, and then a few of the key principles around pandemic planning um, that we've we've um, put together um, and and garnered from resources around the place uh, and then hopefully illustrate them with some case studies some some actual clients that have come to us with problems that we've needed to apply these structures to to make sure that we mitigate their risk um, so business certainly is no longer as usual um, I'm wondering how many of you here remember the Codrill soldier on ads that have played for a very very long time um, which in light of the current environment have not aged particularly well in fact the soldier on ads were uh, there was a complaint received against them in 2008 um, in which essentially um, the complaint said we know that this is a terrible idea if you should if you're sick you should stay home um, but it was dismissed uh, without further action so hopefully we can look back at these kinds of things now and maybe do a little bit better um, I'll start off with uh, a little bit of the slightly dry legislative stuff. There is an employer obligation um, that you keep your workplace safe, that you provide a safe working environment um, that is free from hazards, or at least those hazards are, are managed through the kinds of risk mitigation strategies that we've put in place. And for COVID-19 and this environment, certainly your obligations would extend towards providing a work environment that has a 
as many realistic and practical controls as, as possible to reduce the likelihood of infection from COVID-19. So I suppose the questions that we're starting off with where, where we began was, how do we end up where we are now? What should we do? Uh, how long will this last and what happens next? So how did we end up here? This is a coronavirus. So we're actually talking about how these things look. They are absolutely minuscule, uh, essentially nano machines. Um, if you were to break the thing apart, this is how it would look much, much, much magnified. Um, it's essentially a, um, a series of small bits of RNA all linked together um, inside a protein and lipid shell pretty well, um, which uh, in on, on its own is inert. It, it doesn't do anything. Uh, but once it gets inside your body, it begins to multiply and make copies of itself. Um, so unlike a human cell or a bacterial cell, um, it's essentially just a little cellular machine um, that lives inside of you. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus and COVID-19 is the illness that it causes. The current background uh, in terms of worldwide stats is uh, still frightening to me. It's over 3 million cases with over 200,000 deaths but thankfully about a million people recovered. Um, but this was not something that was actually a, an enormous surprise to the World Health Organization. Um, in fact, after um, MERS and SARS popped up um, some number of years ago, the WHO put out a watch list for um, diseases that it thought would be of immediate and upcoming concern, things that needed attention. And uh, on that list was coronaviruses. So they've been around for a while. We know they exist and we know that they were probably coming, but we, we weren't really prepared. Um, so like I say, it's assembled from uh, RNA encapsulated in essentially a protein shell with a lipid membrane on the outside and then a series of envelope and spike proteins, which are the bits that attach to your cells. Um, in terms of size, absolutely minuscule. If that's an E. coli cell, and I know a lot of us are aware of bacteria, coronavirus is much, much smaller than that, which in its own right is much, much smaller than a red blood cell. So we're talking absolutely tiny. So when we, when we discuss respiratory droplets and exhalation and aerosols and that kind of thing, they really are just absolutely minuscule, um, tiny little things. Um, so unfortunately that makes them fairly apt to spread in a lot of ways. Um, but it seems to be that the primary mechanism by which these things spread is respiratory droplets. So essentially uncontrolled coughing, sneezing, spitting, um, are, are the ways that this thing actually disseminates in the environment. So you would spray them out essentially in a, uh, in, in a mist. And for the most part, they seem to settle on surfaces. Um, that also means they end up on your hands and on your face if you're unwell, um, and unfortunately end up on those surfaces, which if you touch, they end up on your hands and once again, back to your face. So really that route of transmission, although there is a degree of, of inhalation of those particles is very much hand to face, hand to mouth, hand to a, a mucous membrane of some kind, um, rather than prolonged um, 
persistence in the air. We know that the aerosols hang around, but they don't seem to spread enormously long distances and fill buildings and air spaces like plumes, which means that everyone is you know, exposed to an incredibly high degree. Um, it, is, it is much more a, a contact sort of spread from contaminated surfaces. There are some things we certainly don't know yet. There hasn't been an established infectious, infectious dose, so we don't know the number of viral particles you need to be exposed to to cause an illness. Um, but in a lot of ways, that's not necessarily going to crack the case, as it were. Um, you don't need to know how much is on the surface to know that you should probably clean it. You don't need to know how much is on your hands to know that you shouldn't touch your face and should, and should wash them. So it might provide some interesting uh, context, uh, but it won't, it won't be the bit of information that sort of is the silver bullet that, that solves the day. Um, there are on, ongoing updates. Uh, the Australian Government Department of Health website has a lot of good information there and is updating it with that information as it becomes available. Um, so understanding on surfaces is where you would probably most likely encounter it. The most obvious question is how long does it last on the surface? There's been some good recent work done uh, as well as a little bit of historic work on similar viruses. Um, Certainly in aerosols, it seems to settle out or not be detectable after three or so hours. Copper, brass, those kinds of surfaces will probably be relatively short uh, persistence time, four or less hours. The more inert surfaces, so stainless steel, polypropylene, um, probably laminates and, and other surfaces, you might last a couple of days before the virus is no longer detectable. Um, and glass, PVC, possibly a little bit longer. It really depends on how much lands there to begin with, but certainly the, uh, it, it'll be somewhere in the range of a, of a few days. Um, once again, this is very useful background, but in several ways, it probably won't crack the case because a lot of the hygiene principles that you apply would be applied uniformly. The idea would be understanding that it can persist on a surface means that you just take measures to minimise your risk from those surfaces, rather than deciding, well, it's only four hours on copper and it's only, you know, six hours on this and two days on that. You, it's probably would be most prudent to apply the same kinds of hygiene principles across all areas and across all surfaces. So, when we talk about workplace hygiene, what what do we actually mean? What kinds of principles should we apply? Um, the most obvious one, the one that we're all probably immensely aware of and, and tired of from now, is physical distancing. So just minimising the density between people, reducing the likelihood of coming in contact with someone who might be unwell, increasing the distance between people so that working from home um, is such as uh, in, in some ways uh, an, an easy way to do that. I, I say easy with the caveat of obviously that comes with its own complications. But if we're not all condensed together in the same spot, we decrease our likelihood of transmitting things between people. That 1.5 metres distance is a, a sort of rough and ready number, but it, it's going to reduce the incidental contact that happens between people. It'll, it'll have a degree of minimising the spread of any aerosols generated from coughing and talking to, to some degree. Um, it's it's in, in lots of ways a good reminder just to not touch, to, to be aware. Um, in terms of personal hygiene and workplace cleanliness, hand washing is really surprisingly critical. It's really key here understanding that that transfer from a surface onto your hands and then back to your face is really one of the one of those key links and so by regularly hand washing regularly using hand sanitizer you actually 
very markedly reduce your personal risk. And when you apply it in the workplace, similarly, you reduce the risk of others because you're not spreading anything to a surface. Um, or if there is anything on a surface, you've washed your hands so that it's not spread back to you. Um, so as silly or as simple as it sounds, hand washing and hand sanitizing really is um, an enormously powerful measure if applied correctly. And certainly the advice around that is, it probably doesn't strictly matter what soap you use. Um, the temperature also probably isn't as key as just washing for the correct duration of time, making sure that you actively and effectively cover all surfaces of your hands, under nails, in between fingers and that kind of thing. The amount of time you wash for is a much greater indicator of, of hand hygiene success than any one thing like making sure the water's really hot or making sure you have lots of soap or anything like that. So it's really just doing it properly. Um, that also applies for work surfaces, making sure that they're regularly cleaned and disinfected, particularly surfaces that are touched frequently. Um, and I'll, I'll certainly move on to that in a minute. Um, being aware of monitoring for um, COVID-19 symptoms in the workforce is also another good work hygiene practice, making sure that if someone is unwell or thinks they've come in contact with someone unwell, uh, giving them the facility to report that and then giving them the option to change their duties or stay from stay at home or those kinds of things to reduce that spread is uh, another very powerful measure, as is just good old fashioned advice, signage, reminding people not to touch their face, reminding people to wash their hands, those kinds of things, providing clear advice, um, which is readily available and visible. Um, is, it is surprisingly easy to forget about these things when you're busily in the middle of a, of a task. So having that information available and, and visible is really quite useful. Um, so some of the obvious ones are that, that can be immediately implemented in a lot of workplaces is no handshakes, which we're probably all used to now, um, minimizing transfer of objects between people. So contactless card payments is one that people started implementing very rapidly. Um, reduce the aerosols you generate from coughing and sneezing. So cough into a tissue or your elbow. Certainly keeping that distance will reduce any likelihood of them, will reduce the likelihood of aerosols being spread um, between people. Don't come to work if you're unwell. Minimize handling of goods between customers, uh, but also if there's shared items like shared tools or shared stationery, put a policy in place to make sure that those things aren't, you know, handed from person to person. Um, going further, depending on the workplace, and a lot of this will be very workplace specific, um, just changing some of these basic principles that are so second nature to us that may need to have some degree of strictures put around them. So reorganize a work area to, to maintain distance between people, just increasing that, that spread so people aren't working back to back, changing the way that vehicles and, and shared vehicles are used. You might institute a policy of as fewer people in a vehicle as the one time as, as possible. Um, in, increasing the space between people in a car. So if you were always in the front and a passenger was always in the back, at least you know that who, who, if you've worked in the front and you may be sick, you've only touched the bits in the front, they may have only touched the bits in the back and you have some degree of controls around what's going on. Simply reducing human uh, density, so reduce the amount of people within the workplace and segregating work groups, which is something that I'll pick up a bit more in the, in the case studies. How and why it might work that you divide a team up into team A, team B, team C, just to change the way that those working environments function. Um, things that would be a hygiene red flag, the kinds of stuff that um, I see popping up, the kinds of questions I get. 
um, are to do with what kinds of hand sanitizers are, are useful, what kinds of formulations uh, are, the, are the things that work. Um, you really do need a, a, uh, an appropriate concentration of alcohol in your hand sanitizer. Low or no alcohol content hand sanitizers uh, are likely ineffective. There, there may be some that do contain actual chemical disinfectants, but you really need a hand sanitizer with between 60 to 70% alcohol content for it to, to do what it's meant to be doing. Uh, keeping in mind that hand washing is still the preferred method. Um, obviously, if you're out in the field or somewhere else, you may need to use sanitizers, uh, but hand washing is, is probably the, the method that's most effective. Um, using personal protective equipment inappropriately is certainly another red flag. All the time we're seeing people making their own surgical masks uh, or out of t-shirts, I've seen them being done, um, or just assuming that that's providing a degree of protection that it's, that it's really not designed to do. Uh, all the work so far has seemed to show that surgical masks and face masks are more effective at reducing the spread of viral particles from someone is, who is sick to others, rather than reducing your likelihood of inhaling them. And in fact, if you wear a surgical mask or a respirator or a homemade mask or something that's uncomfortable or you're not used to it because you don't normally wear it, you may actually end up touching your face more frequently because you're adjusting it and you're fiddling with it and it falls off and that kind of thing. So it's important to keep in mind that if these things aren't appropriately used, they cannot end up being counterproductive. Um, the use of gloves uh, without proper training provides very little benefit to the wearer. Um, if you put on gloves and then go about your normal day and touch your face just as much, they're not really doing anything other than providing a different surface through which you're moving viral particles around. So any PPE that you apply, you really need to be aware of what it's for, what you're protecting yourself from, what it's doing and, and how to use it. They're really, they're really key. So once again, there is no silver bullet for if you just completely cover yourself in head to toe with PPE, uh, you'll be safe that's that's not that's not really the case you really need to be aware of why you would wear ppe and, and what it's capable of protecting you off so what is helpful then? Uh, respiratory protection is critical for some workplaces and some people certainly if you're in close contact with someone who is infected uh, where aerosols are being generated uh, that's that's going to probably reduce the transmission um, but it's mainly useful at reducing transmission from the wearer to someone else. So if you were, say, in a clinical setting and someone was coughing, that would probably be a, uh, probably be a very viable scenario where respiratory protection would be pretty critical. If you knew that a surface was contaminated and you were washing it down uh, and you're concerned that your, your spraying processes that to, to add disinfectant were generating an aerosol, then you might choose to wear respiratory protection. Uh, impermeable gloves, so nitrile gloves, latex gloves, those kinds of things. Um, they're most useful when you're obviously going to be working and operating in areas that you do know or there is likely viral contamination. Um, if you need to handle or wash or clean contaminated items, um, then it's probably going to be very useful to, to have some kind of skin protection. Um, areas where you might have frequent contact with multiple visitors where hand washing and hand sanitizing is going to be difficult to achieve with the kind of frequency that you need. Gloves might be useful so that you may just will be able to remove them and, and then wash your hands. Um, but one of the key things there is you would still need to have that hand hygiene following 
um, to ensure that once you had removed those gloves, you were removing any viral particles that had ended up on, on you. Coveralls, uh, aprons, shoe covers are an interesting one. Um, certainly we've seen a lot of workplaces where people might be carrying out heavy manual handling tasks and they're concerned that if they don't wear coveralls, they might become exposed. The difficulty there is obviously they may well be torn, they're difficult to put on and off, they, they may not actually be providing the kind of benefit that is appropriate. Um, it might be useful if you're working in an area that you know is contaminated and you're carrying out some cleaning or critical handling tasks, um, but in a lot of instances you probably need to look at what you were doing, if they were actually going to get in the way, um, how readily available they were, and then make a determination based on the risk there. So it really is working out um, looking at what you think your, your exposure will likely be, if you think the people you'll be getting in the way and understanding what it actually is capable of achieving in terms of risk reduction. So cleaning methodology, high touch surfaces I, I mentioned before. What I mean by high touch surfaces are those shared items, shared areas and shared surfaces that you come in contact with a lot. So door handles and taps, buttons, phones, keyboards, those kinds of things. They're the things that would probably be most likely to be contaminated just due to the fact that you are touching them the most. So if you were going to target your cleaning efforts and increase the cleaning frequency, you would want to be looking at things like that where you know that they're handled frequently. Whereas things like say the ceiling is probably not going to constitute as great a risk. Um, so in that regard, you would need to check that yourself or your cleaning contractors are using suitable protocols. So that means that they're safe, they're generating a minimum aerosol, so you're not vigorously spraying surfaces, but if you needed to do something like that, that you had appropriate controls in place, such as PPE. You need to make sure it's effective and thorough. You need to make sure that it's applied to those areas that you know are most likely to be contaminated, and you need to know that it's applied for the correct amount of time so that it's actually doing what it's meant to do, using appropriate chemicals. So. There is a, a long list of um, appropriate chemicals, and um, I, I'll list some of them in a moment, that we know uh, if they're applied at the correct concentration for the correct amount of time, they will provide a disinfectant effect such that the virus will be um, deactivated, will be broken apart. And you need to make sure that it's applied with suitable frequency. You may well have had a, a, a process where cleaners came in one, once a week. You may decide to bump that up to once every two days or every day or something like that, depending on the amount of people working in that space, the amount of access to the general public, those kinds of things. So what do we know is effective? Um, there is a big list of stuff. Uh, I've listed there at the bottom there, the, the actual um, master list um, I, can, I can make available. Um, but essentially the key takeaways are these compounds. Um, I've listed a couple of example compounds. They're not the only ones, they're just a, an example of what is available. So benzalkonium chloride is, is in things like um, hospital grade pinocleaning disinfectant. Ethanol um, is in is essentially methylated spirits, but you need to make sure the concentration is, is above 60 to 70%. Um, formaldehyde is not often applied, uh, but is out there. Peroxide is one that sometimes turns up. Uh, it's one of those ones that's sometimes referred to as, an, as, as bleach or an oxidizing bleach. Uh, but most often when we talk about bleach, what we actually mean is sodium hypochlorite, which I've listed down there. That's when we say bleach, sodium hypochlorite is the one that most frequently uh, we're talking about. And that's the one that 
um, WHO, uh, CDC and the Australian government is really recommending is used for surfaces and, and disinfecting and cleaning, mainly because it's readily available, easy to, to, uh, to dose in terms of its dilution. Uh, most people understand what, what that is. Um, and it's it's not tremendously risky uh, in terms of personal health uh, in comparison to some of the other ones. Um, so how does this thing actually get disinfected? Um, it's in a lot of ways quite a surprisingly fragile little bit of um, nano machinery. Um, so disinfectant physically disrupts the, that outer lipid encapsulation. Essentially, it pulls it all apart. And then once it's pulled apart, all of the, the, the viral RNA, the inside bits of the virus, kind of disassemble themselves pretty rapidly, a bit, a bit like a, you know, a, a stack of dominoes. Um, but you do need to apply these compounds in the correct concentration for that to actually occur. Um, I, it's, it is key. And it is also key to mention that cleaning and disinfection are separate processes. Cleaning removes soil, dirt, other contaminants from a surface. Um, it may do some degree of breaking down of the viral particle, um, but it generally makes the surface more able to be disinfected using one of those compounds following. Fogging and air sanitizing is one that comes up a lot. Um, it's not recommended um, by, by the CDC. It's, it, it's one of those difficult ones because it's difficult to dose. Essentially, if you have your concentration made up in the machine that does the fogging, it really depends on how much you pump into an area and the size of the area. So it's difficult to know that you've applied the correct amount to the correct areas. Um, sometimes it's applied sort of prophylactic, prophylactically, so ahead of time uh, to clean the air as such, which presents its own difficulties for a few reasons. Number one being uh, often these things are a health risk. If you fill the air with uh, chemical compounds, you then need to go about a process of making sure that it's appropriately vented but your ventilation systems may never have been designed to deal with compounds like that. So you end up risking uh, damage to plant and furnishings and other equipment. Um, so there's a series of reasons that it's not strictly recommended uh, to be done. Uh, the other mechanisms we've talked about so far in terms of good hygiene principles and cleaning are probably going to uh, provide you a, a much greater risk reduction rather than um, indiscriminately fogging and hoping that it's doing what you think it's doing. Um, testing, monitoring and clearance post-cleaning is another difficult one. Um, it's probably better to rely upon a robust cleaning process and protocols simply because you can't sample everything. It's difficult to know if you've, if you've nailed it unless you sample all the surfaces, but the question is how many should I sample? What amount is enough? Um, it's difficult to say that might be, depending on a workplace, 50, 100, 300 samples, something like that. So it's really difficult to apply. I won't go really deep into this. There are a few test methods out there. Some rely upon actually detecting the viral RNA. Um, some of them rely on other indicators, say general surface cleanliness indicators, um, which typically show up bacteria rather than the virus. But the same kinds of principles apply. It's it's not going to be the silver bullet to demonstrate that your workplace is clear. You can't just swab the front door and say, well, if I didn't find anything there, it's probably fine. It may be a useful adjunct um, clipped into other bits and pieces, but if unless you have the, the protocols and the principles done correctly in the background, um, this testing and clearance piece 
will always be problematic and, and, and possibly not telling you what you think it is. Um, so, before we go any further, I have a very quick poll um, that I'm, I'm interested to know um, relating to what you had done, what you had available. Um, if you could all, if I'll give you a few minutes to, to answer that, I'm, I'm interested to know. Um, Michael, can you see that poll? I can, I can. Okay. Um, so do we, we, I'm assuming you'll wait a couple of, uh, a minute or so, maybe maybe even a minute's enough. Um, uh, and then I suppose you close it and we get some results, uh, which we can talk about. Right, well, we have 60% um, voted so far, so it shouldn't take too long. Sure. Okay, can we bring the results up? Well, basically for the first question, in case you, you can't see them. Mm -hmm. um, I think if people, uh, I'm not sure how it shows on the webinar software, but for the first question, did you have a pandemic plan in place prior to COVID-19? 27% yes and said yes, and 73% said no. Mm -hmm. Do you want uh, me to continue to read them? Yes, please, that'd be excellent. Um, do you have a pandemic plan in place now? 78% um, said yes. Um, 1% said no, and 21% said we're working it out as we go. That's almost a complete reversal. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and number three, are you confident your pandemic plan in place now is robust? And 75% have said yes, and 22% have said no, and 3% don't have one. Right. Well, that's, that's very interesting. Um, certainly, it, it changed the landscape for a lot of people. I mean, I know that what's likely happened is a lot of these pandemic plans may have been um, very much built for this emergency, for, for COVID currently. Oh yes, and there's, there's the results that have popped up on my screen now. Um, but that list of WHO um, potential pathogens of the future, things to be concerned about, is not just this. There's, there's several other things there and the planning you put in place um, should cover more than one illness. It should, it should be a bit multifactorial and it should incorporate some of these principles. So you should be monitoring how these things uh, evolve. There should be someone who's, who keeps on top of it and maybe understands. Um, documenting who does what, in what circumstances, um, making sure you've got communications in place at different levels, um, identifying those critical surfaces and how they might be affected, limiting human density. We've talked a lot about site access and general public, um, hygiene, cleaning, uh, environmental controls, and all those kinds of things. It's all the stuff that should get baked into a pandemic plan. And that's certainly the stuff that um, we can and have assisted with um, from, a, from our perspective. It's the kinds of things that people bring to us and have said, is this enough or can I do more? Um, so what I'll do next is actually talk about some of those instances where someone has come to us and said, well, what now? Um, now the first one I'm, I'm going to call critical services. Uh, it, essentially, the client came to us and they were a medical equipment supply company. The, it, these were items coming out of a hospital and they were likely in close proximity to people who were known to be infected. Um, that equipment 
was taken out of the hospital, returned to the supplier, used on a short cycle, recharged and, and brought back. So um, the, these items went in and out and in and out and in and out, and that was how it had always happened. But of course, in the current environment, um, it presents a risk when you have something that's handled, handled by multiple staff across multiple different service groups and, and different interacting agencies. Um, you, you start to realize that that normal process of receiving the goods, loading them onto a truck, driving them around, unloading them, resupplying them, and setting them out again actually has a lot of different people that could be affected if you realize that you had some contamination occurring. The further complication there was that these items couldn't just be dosed with bleach. They couldn't be dumped in a tank of alcohol and then and then sent on their on their way in a ready, rough and ready fashion. It wasn't something that was as simple as that, unfortunately, um, because they were receiving multiple of these things at a time. Um, they, it was unclear whether they were going to be contaminated, and they couldn't just, like I say, bleach them all down. It was it was not really going to happen. So. The first priority, when they, when they came to us and we, they laid this process out to us, our first priority, the bit that we, we thought, well, clearly we need to start here, is to minimise or eliminate any downstream contamination. Understanding that these things got handed on from person to person to person, we realised that if we let them get all the way back to their endpoint before they were cleaned, you, you may well be contaminating along the way. So priority number one was reduce the likelihood to, of, for that happening which clearly meant that any cleaning needs to be carried out in the first instance, essentially at the point of receipt. Um, so that's going to minimise any chances of cross-contamination. Um, but in order for that to happen, we needed to be clever. We couldn't just, like I say, we couldn't have set up a, a, a rainwater tank full of chlorine and then just throwing these things in. That wasn't going to work. So we needed to look at these areas understand the sensitivities around them, what kind of space we had, who was going to be operating there, and essentially set up an exclusion zone or a contained area in which the process could be carried out. Um, apply the appropriate PPE, uh, use a disinfectant or a chemical that we knew wasn't going to leave, uh, wasn't going to damage the equipment, wasn't going to be a risk to health, um, and then proceed with the normal process. So remove PPE and then proceed with the resupply process. So the real complications there were, we didn't have the flexibility to apply the normal kinds of compounds because of the sensitivity of these, of these items. We needed to apply something that didn't leave a residue that wasn't gonna damage the equipment, um, uh, that wasn't gonna end up becoming a, a danger to the end users once they've, they've come back. So we couldn't apply something really toxic that wasn't gonna work. Um, we, we needed to work in a swift fashion because there was multiple items all at once and we needed to make sure that the people that were doing it weren't going to be at risk when they carried out this process. So in this instance, we identified what PPE was going to be useful, what compounds were going to be effective, how they could apply them in a rapid fashion. And then going forward, we knew that once it got back to the supply depot, they weren't going to constitute a risk. They could come back clean, ready to go um, and, and, and functioning in the capacity they were expected to be. So, we supplied the company with the, the safe working procedure, with a method for that disinfection, um, with a process for cleaning down their trucks, as well as that good hygiene principles that we've spoken about before. Um, so some of those assumptions that we, that we made and the recommendations we made, like I say, 
we couldn't apply something that that left a, a residual a, a toxic byproduct or something on the on the actual units themselves um so the two recommendations we made were looking at things that we knew were going to not be particularly toxic you could apply it in that setting where they weren't going to be flammable or dangerous uh, in the kinds of concentrations or methods that we that we were looking at um and we we supplied them with methods that we knew would minimize the likelihood of cross-contamination provide them appropriate handling tools and skills um and provide them with protocol so that if anything did change or anything went wrong they knew what they were doing why they were doing it and if any alterations had happened what those alterations were um, another interesting client that came to us um, was a critical industry was a a power station um, which in its own right is very much like a lot of industrial sites they're large they have a lot of deliveries they have multiple contractors um, with different work groups but the complication here is that it needed to remain operational needed to remain staffed um, but those operation staff could only be carried out those operations could only, could only be carried out by particularly highly trained staff so there was a, essentially a, a, a bottleneck it, it wasn't like a, a regular manual handling task where if you know half the team gets sick you might be able to bring in casual workers to, to fill the gap that's just that wasn't going to be possible here across these sites you really needed to have a plan in place to make sure that those operations were going to continue with minimal disruption. So the process we went through from a really high level overview was to review what processes they already had in place and then immediately provide a gap analysis, work out what more could be done if the things that have been applied were doing what they were expected to be doing and then provide recommendations for how it could be improved um, and then to provide some advice, some overview for what processes could be implemented to maybe um, further reduce that risk. Um, so keeping all these things in mind, this multifactorial ABCDEFG kind of setup, I've, I've tried to illustrate what I'm talking about. So if we mocked up the site, you'd have quite a large site with lots of buildings, facilities, bits and pieces, equipment, machinery, etc. With frequent deliveries, so you've got a lot of people coming in from the outside, doing their functions and then leaving with multiple contractors, technical staff, operation staff, who integrate with each other frequently. They need to interact all the time to actually do what they did. So that in its own right presented complications because it was gonna be very difficult to segregate those work groups up to make sure that you didn't have the critical staff interacting with the delivery staff and all that kind of thing, uh, because that obviously presents a risk of contamination from um, the outside to some of those common shared areas. Um, as well as on common shared items and tools and common shared spaces. So understanding that that was what existed to begin with, one of the immediate things to do was to limit site access to make sure that we knew where people were coming in and where they were leaving so that we could control that. Understand very clearly what path people had taken so that if something did go wrong, we could trace it back to a limited number of access areas begin looking at the health of the people coming and going from site, instituting policies around that, making sure the communications were clear, that if someone was coming in, they needed to have not gone to certain areas, be well, um, have self-reported their health, those kinds of things. Introduce some kinds of processes around comings and goings, receipts of goods, um, handling of common equipment and that kind of thing to reduce the likelihood of impact from outside sources. Um, so, the next step was then to begin looking at those other processes on site, uh, to look at isolating that operational staff, that critical 
area that, that couldn't go offline, to look at segregating common areas, um, minimising those interactions, making sure that non-critical staff could begin working from home. So introducing that, that physical distancing, start putting in place more of those hygiene plans to do with what PPE can be used and when, what kind of sanitation should be carried out and where, and really reinforce that good hand, hand hygiene and face hygiene to all workers. So returning to the site, you begin to alter that workflow. So where once you had that degree of interaction between critical and that core and technical staff, you begin to break it all up. Instead of having everyone in one big team, segregated into multiple teams, isolate those critical areas, change duties so that you have a minimization of cross flow, cross contamination between groups. Um, so that's a that did require a degree of alteration to those duties and, and, and structures, but once in place, it all began to reduce the likelihood of if one person was sick, the entire site becoming unwell. Uh, then we went ahead and we audited their cleaning methods. So like we spoke about before, how it was being applied, using what, where to, frequency, those kinds of things, particularly looking at those high touch areas, making sure that they were using the right kinds of compounds uh, on the right uh, on the right surfaces for the right amount of time with the correct kind of frequency. So we were talking about applying it to things like light switches and, and kitchen areas and that kind of thing, uh, as well as reducing any uh, impact of people outside movement through those critical areas. So it really was a process of drawing strict circles around no-go areas and making sure that people knew where they were going and why, um, being a bit more accountable for day-to-day day -day movements. Um, making sure they did some really, it seems like simple stuff, but um, important things like making sure you don't change workstations during a shift, um, increase the amount of fresh air exchanges in occupied offices, which is uh, increasingly the uh, high level advice is, is showing that that's probably quite key to reducing the amount of uh, aerosols. Increasing that fresh air dilutes the amount of viral particles in the air and uh, reduces the likelihood of you becoming uh, exposed to them. Um, and then went on with further pandemic planning as, as we discussed before. So this is all a lot. This is a lot for anyone to take in. And I understand um, that applying all these things all at once would probably be seem exhausting. Um, some of you may have seen this graph, some of you may not have, but the bit, the bit I want you to focus on is the, the pink bit that says warning. We've done an extremely good job. Uh, Australia-wide, we've done really, really well. I'm glad it's not business as usual because the red line would have happened. Those massively increased continuing infections would have occurred, but we've actually done really well. Um, the difficulty now will be maintaining it until we, we're sure that it's fine and making sure that if stuff starts to pick up again, we put those strictures back on again. We have a plan, we have processes, we know what we're doing um, and we can apply it. So it is tiring, but we're, we're right at the bit where the efforts are paying off extremely well. It'll be very tempting to assume that we overreacted, that we did too much, that it was, we're massive, it was a massive wasted effort and it wasn't. Planning is probably very rarely ever a wasted effort and certainly planning going forward, looking at what might be on the horizon and what we can do next is, is probably gonna be key to making sure that in the next 12 months, five years, 10 years, if something like this pops up again, we know what we're doing. We can get the advice as quickly as possible and, and apply the kinds of things that we know work or adapt them to the current situation. So don't feel like this is 
uh, that you've overreacted and you've you've exhausted yourself and burnt yourself out for no effort. It has had an effort, and the reduced numbers of infections have demonstrated that the effect has been marked. So, um, if you do want more information, uh, we've the Greencaps put together a workplace hygiene checklist, which is available at the following link. Um, it's got some useful resources there. It's got some of those tables that I've put in there in terms of um, how long things last on surface and chemical compounds that are effective. Um, but it's probably going to be most useful if I answer some of your questions now because it's a lot of information to absorb. Um, so I will open it to the floor um, and, and hopefully be able to uh, provide a little bit of, of clarity around some things that might be uh, on your minds. So um, let's go to the Q&A session. Do you want me to read them out, Michael? Um, I'm, I'm happy to read them out. I can probably go through them. Okay. So how effective are the hand sanitizers without hand washing? Um, hand sanitizers are, are pretty good. Like I say, um, it needs to be the, the right amount of alcohol concentration and 70% is about right. But keep in mind, I did, I did say that cleaning and disinfection are different processes. Uh, they really are. Cleaning is designed to remove um, debris, dirt, that kind of thing. And disinfection and sanitization is then designed to kill what's ever there. So if your hands are really, really dirty, and then you apply hand sanitizer on top, it may not be having the effect that's desired. Uh, it may be significantly reduced by how much, it's difficult to say. It would provide some degree of sanitization, but it's not gonna be as effective as if your hands were clean. Um, unfortunately, there's not, a, there's not a rough and ready. If you've got 10 grains of dirt, then it's not gonna work kind of thing. Um, but unfortunately, no, it is gonna be reduced um, if you don't have relatively clean hands to begin with. There, there, is, a, there is a reduction effect there, unfortunately. Um, what respirator or PPE can you recommend for teaching within one meter distance in a welding class? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, certainly that close contact, um, like I say, close proximity and, and aerosol generation is one of the, one of the tricky things um, because if someone is sick and they're generating those aerosols and you're in close contact with them, you're, you're likely being exposed in, in that setting it it may it depends on what you're intending to to reduce the spread through is from you to them or both um so a few things would probably need to go in place there if you weren't already wearing, wearing a respirator because of the welding process um you you may well you may well choose to institute a cleaning process for that you know the respirator and everything you put on uh, a fluid resistant um a surgical mask might be effective, but you're going to be limited by stocks. I know those stocks are becoming more available currently, um, but my recommendation would be if you could avoid being within one meter, that's probably the better control rather than wearing PPE. Um, that's, that may well be my answer for some of these questions, but the old PPE hierarchy of controls would suggest that you should probably do something before you put PPE on and then only use PPE if you absolutely have to. Um, but the recommendation there is what they call fluid-resistant surgical mask to reduce the, the transmission of aerosols between people. But those other hygiene principles are probably also going to need to apply there because you're going to be in a shared workspace. You may be using shared tools. Um, you, you might just want to slightly change the way you work so you have a bit more distance and apply a few more cleaning controls. Um, have you had any experience or information on UV disinfection? Yes, I do have a bit. Um, 
UV disinfection can work very well, but the limitation there is it only works upon what it's applied to. So keep in mind that, say, if you dunk something in disinfectant, in a, in a container of disinfectant, it gets applied to all the surfaces because it's immersed. Whereas UV casts shadows. So UV is pretty good on flat surfaces and surfaces that are non-complex. Um, and it works pretty effectively for this virus, but the limitation is unless it's being exposed to all surfaces, the, um, you, you won't be getting a, a complete disinfection going on. Um, so UVC applied for you know, five, 10 minutes is probably going to work, but um, you need to be sure that it's actually getting applied to all those surfaces, otherwise it's, it's not really gonna be effective. What controls do you recommend for shared fleet vehicles other than regular cleaning? We've gone against wipes and cars because of the rubbish it creates, thinking of sanitizer at key points, um, collection is efficient. Yep, wipes are, are a tricky one. Obviously there's A, limited supply, but B, you end up with 10 million little, you know, moist highlights everywhere. Um, certainly you could get a sanitizer or a disinfectant made up in a, in a spray or a bottle that you could apply uh, onto that surface and then wipe, wipe it down with a, with a cloth or something like that. I mean, the thing there would be the high touch surfaces again. So you'd be looking at steering wheels, um, door handles, um, seat belts, that kind of thing. The recommendations uh, are to increase your airflow. Don't have your air conditioner on recirculate and have it on fresh. Have windows open if you can to reduce any aerosols that would be building up in the cabin because that's gonna be one of the key things because you're in such close proximity. Um, Obviously, reusing a cloth presents its own difficulties. You may you may choose to have a certain number that you, you use and then get rid of. Um, it's going to rely upon how effective that is. It's going to rely upon a couple of things, but certainly a big part of that is how many people use that vehicle, for how long are you changing drivers, that kind of stuff, and have a process in place. It might certainly be tedious, but making sure that you had something that was um, in place and documented would probably begin to be helpful there. I realise I'm running through these very quickly, but... There's a lot, unsurprisingly. Um, right, moving on. What would you recommend for a business a hazard ID and control process for tasks that may involve cross-contamination? Um, possibly, it depends on the kinds of cross-contamination and uh, what I mean is how frequently something is, is handled. There may be items, I mean, this is facetious, but you'll take my point. Let's say you've got a workplace and it's only got one hammer then clearly you're gonna put something in place to, to say, if everyone's using the one hammer, we have to have something in place to make sure that it's cleaned properly or handled properly. So it, that will apply for anything that the general public handles as well. So the elevator buttons, keypads, that kind of stuff will probably present a greater risk. You might choose to have something in place that, that identifies this is a high touch area, ensure you wash your hands, um, although it's cleaned down frequently, just to reinforce to people, we're all touching the same stuff. Let's be aware of it and make sure we do something about it. Do we need to clean shared equipment before use, i.e. quad bike use, wipe down beforehand? Um, similar to a lot of the stuff, um, it's probably a, a good idea depending on the number of people that have used it, um, uh, essentially the number of hands that's gone through. Um, you, you may choose to do that um, or you may just choose to institute a policy where you, you, you know, Jim uses bike A and, and Jane uses bike B and that kind of thing, and you stick to that. Um, wiping down's probably a good idea. Once again, it, it, it'll, it might become exhausting depending on if you have to jump on and off the bike, 
you know, 200 times a day, you may choose to just change your policy so you don't have to wipe it down 200 times a day. You've got something else in place. So you know who's doing what, who's touching what, you know, maybe Jane always drives and Jim's always on the back so that you don't have that cross-contamination. Will frequent use of sanitizer cause skin issues? Yes, unfortunately uh, it will. There is, um, that ethanol will dry your skin out. There is recommendation that if you wash your hands, um, you dry them first before you um, add uh, disinfectant, it depends on the, uh, add alcohol sanitizer um, or you um, make sure you moisturize in between. There is actually advice on that. It comes up a lot. It can be, uh, it can start being damaging to your hands, which presents its own risk. Um, so yes, there is, there is actually um, World Health Organization advice on that, but essentially it, it is make sure that when you, when you do that, you've, you've dried your hands in between or that you, you understand when you're washing your hands and why it is. I know that there's going to be nurses out there whose, whose fingers are falling apart who are crying at this, but um, fortunately it's a very useful control measure, which is difficult to get around. Start forgetting dry hands and can develop sensitization. Yes, uh, I understand you should moisturize at work. Um, yes, it's that exactly what we've spoken about. It's, it, is a, it is a complicated one. Um, hand washing is, is probably preferable to um, using sanitizer. Like I say, hand washing is gonna be a little more gentle than using um, sanitizer because that ethanol, the alcohol really does strip the moisture out of your skin and can become very sensitizing, particularly to other chemicals that you come in contact with. Um, what would be the best frequency of using spray disinfectants? We have one type here that states for up to 30 days. Um, is, uh, I'm assuming that means it says it's effective up to 30 days. I would suggest you probably need to increase the frequency. It depends on the formulation and, and what you're actually adding, but um, those areas that are trafficked a lot and handled a lot will just require more frequent cleaning. Um, so once again, door handles, taps, um, the lunchroom table, keypads, etc., will probably require just more frequent um, sanitizing, more frequent disinfection. Um, so that 30 day keeps stuff clean for whatever is, is not going to be effective if you've got a lot of people touching it and then re-adding to that viral load. You'll probably need to work out based upon the frequency, obviously the door to the, you know, the, the basement store cabinet is probably not going to be, you're not going to need as frequent disinfection as the door at the front of the shop. Um, so you need to have a look at how many people go through there and then decide to do it, you know, once an hour, twice a day, something like that. There is no hard and fast rule on that one. It just depends upon the amount of people coming through that surface um, and the amount of people handling it. I noticed you have spray and wipe in the recommendation cleaning list. In Victoria, there are specific requirements for disinfecting surfaces in retail that must be antiviral. Is spray and wipe antiviral or only antibacterial? So spray and wipe um, depends on the formulation. Again, a lot of spray and wipe contains uh, an, an acid compound. It's actually um, lactic acid in most instances, which is actually effective, but you need to have the required contact time. So you can't just go spray wipe. You really need to go spray and leave for a period of time. Um, it's, it's, in fact, it's even in that list of compounds and, and chemicals I have there um, in order for it to be effective. It's not the most preferred, but there is some effectiveness there. Uh, it would be better to use other things, although it, it, it does reduce the viral load on the surface. You just need a longer contact time more than anything. You need to have a 10 minute contact time rather than 30 seconds, 60 seconds. So it is, it, it can be effective, it is on that list, but it's not the one that 
that we would recommend, but certainly in some cases, it's what people have. Um, there, are, there is better stuff out there and I would recommend you use that, but it's being aware of the concentration required and the, ex the uh, exposure time required. What cleaners should you not mix in use? The general advice is don't mix cleaning agents at all. You, you, you shouldn't be mixing cleaning agents. Um, you can be diluting them, um, but that you shouldn't be doing that. Um, the formulation on there, well, the, the instructions on there in the SDS should tell you what's in it and how to handle it appropriately. Um, and certainly mixed, mixing can cause, can cause big problems. Um, I have formaldehyde on there because I know in, in some clinical settings that's going to be used. It's, uh, I'll only mention that it's not something that is frequently, is frequently used. It does have some uses in specific settings, but certainly the, um, most readily available is going to be bleach, so sodium hypochlorite, maybe benzyconium chloride, which turns up in a lot of hospital grade disinfectants, they call it. Um, but no, the rep, don't, don't mix cleaning products, please. Um, our office is segregated by cubicles. Is that enough, or do we need to follow the 1.5 meter distancing? Um, separated by cubicles is probably not bad, particularly if you've got a high partition in between. Um, it's, it's once again, it's going to be based upon a couple of things, but in that instance, the amount of fresh air and ventilation um, is probably going to be important. So the, the greater the number of fresh air exchanges an hour, the better. You probably need to talk to your um, heating and ventilation contracting company to, to, to determine if you can alter your number of fresh air exchanges an hour and to what degree, because at a certain point, uh, an HVAC system is not going to cope with, with being, um, filled with particularly as your indoor and outdoor air conditions change it's something that you should consider but a high partition in between might be effective um, it, it depends on lots of stuff that 1.5 meter distance is uh, is probably more applicable applicable to open environments but a closed environment like that might be fine as long as you're not then walking around the cubicle and standing right next to the person as you talk to them and interact with them. How much more effective is N95 mask compared to a surgical mask in a dental head setting treating patients? Um, once again, depends on, on um, what you're doing. The, if it's for the dentist trying not to infect the patient, it's probably quite effective because you're going to capture most of those um, respiratory droplets. If it's from the patient back, it might be, might be partially effective, um, but that close proximity is going to be uh, challenging. Um, I don't actually have a, a, a strict bit of guidance for a, a dental healthcare setting, but I would imagine it's probably going to be similar to infection control they're doing in other clinical settings um, where uh, that N95 mask is probably going to be useful, really, really very high up close. Uh, surgical masks, depending on how they're made, can be very useful. It might be useful to have someone to come in and do respirator fit testing regardless, um, because you can get a good fit on uh, any kind of mask that you've got on, but you need to make sure that you're actually wearing it appropriately. And that includes things like making sure you don't have facial hair, making sure it's correctly placed, correctly sized and tightened. Um, otherwise, it won't really matter what mask you're wearing. It's not going to be tremendously effective. Can we reduce disinfection frequencies by using disinfectants that remain deposited on surfaces while still active for longer periods of time? Uh, possibly. It depends on lots of stuff. Once again, how frequently an item is handled, um, as well as how much dirt it gets on it, and that kind of thing will change. So it's a sliding scale, unfortunately. There's no silver bullet. Um, so stuff that leaves a residual will probably provide an, a slightly longer ongoing effect. 
but how long an effect is really open to debate. I couldn't make a recommendation and say, if you apply compound X, you'll be safe for the rest of the week um, because there's too many factors that go into that. The short answer is possibly, but increase, increasing that cleaning frequency uh, and understanding what items present the highest risk is probably gonna be the most useful. What PPE is required recommended when working on sewer pipes and vents? Um, there is some interesting work showing that you are sh that people who are infected shed um, infectious viral particles in their feces, which means in theory um, sewage can be a, a vector for contaminated for infection. Um, I'm not actually sure of any, I'm not aware of any particular guidance on PPE when working around sewer pipes and vents, but having worked in wastewater treatment plants in a previous life, um, I can tell you that making sure that you've got uh, appropriate footwear, um, gloves and that kind of thing, and being aware of your personal hygiene, having a uniform that is frequently laundered or, or you take off once you come back from site, that kind of thing um, is going to be key. Uh, to making sure that you're not infected there. I don't have a really hard and fast rule um, other than you need to work out what kind of processes you're carrying out. Um, if it's purely based upon the respiratory stuff, I actually don't know if there's anything done on re-aerosolization re from sewage, but I would imagine anything where you've got splashing, uncontrolled flow, high velocity liquids, that kind of thing, you probably are going to be generating an aerosol and you probably would seek to wear a respirator or some kind of respiratory protection. What do you mean by ordered chemicals? There are uh, chemicals that we know are effective in certain concentrations um, for particular exposure times. Um, but there is a master list that the US EPA has put out that's endorsed by the CDC and WHO. When we go through that auditing process, we're essentially looking at what compounds a cleaner is using, making sure that they're delivered to the correct concentration and that they're being applied correctly. So that's what I mean by audited, really. Um, can the virus migrate from one surface to another? Not readily. Um, it's not going to be, it's not likely to be picked up by very gentle currents and that kind of thing. There is not a lot of work done in this area. The best stuff that I've found is based upon a work looking at DNA transfer for criminal cases where you have something that's got DNA on it and you rub it on something else and you see how much transfers. It depends on so many different things, stuff like the roughness of the surface, how much was originally there, how wet it is on the surface, those kinds of things. It's very difficult to predict. There's no way to game it out and say, well, because I rubbed my Velcro on my you know, LCD screen, the likelihood of going to transfer 2000 viral particles, it's impossible to say. You can't really game that out. It's better to rely on those principles and protocols we've spoken about. So yes, there might be some. How much is very much up for debate. Um, how regularly should keyboards be cleaned, i.e. libraries and computer labs? If so, in a large workplace, is it reasonable to continue to ask staff and students to maintain hygiene rather than clean every keyboard? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um, depends on, obviously the recommendation would be try not to share keyboards as much as possible, but in a shared computer lab, that's going to become complicated. Um, I think the difficulty there will be, even if you have one person using a keyboard and they've got clean hands, it's very likely that they would still accidentally touch their face or cough or do something like that, which would then mean you need to clean the keyboard down afterwards. Um, that's going to be, I suppose, tiresome to a degree, but but wiping them down may end up being required. Um, unfortunately, I, I'm not sure if you can, you can get around that because people unfortunately do touch their face. Um, is there 
a practical device to put a washed hand under a specific light to see bacteria, etc., confirm the cleanliness of the skin, successive washing. Not in an everyday environment. You can put fluorescent traces on your hands to show how much is there and then wash and then so show how much is afterwards, but that's really only ever done in a teaching space or a demonstrating capacity. It's not really something that you, there's no um, CSI light that you can shine on your hand that shows what's there. It doesn't really work like that. Um, so no, unfortunately, there, there's not something that will just give you a, a rough and ready. If you follow the actual washing your hands 60 seconds procedure, you probably have done a pretty good job, but in an everyday capacity, no, but you can get fluorescent dyes that you put on your hands to show you how cleaning is done. You can look that up and maybe um, give it a try for yourself. Um, but no, there is no magic light, unfortunately. Should personnel be permitted to wear their own masks if they choose to use a personal control to deter touching their face? Possibly, once again, it comes back to what they're trying to control, but also understanding that people who are not familiar with wearing a mask may end up touching their face more. So if they're trained and understand how to use PPE and it's not going to cause them discomfort, it might be worthwhile. If it's something that's unfamiliar to them, unapproved, made out of a t-shirt, that kind of thing, it might end up becoming a hindrance more than a help. So um, there's a few things to consider there before you make a ruling on it. Are there any additional recommendations for cleaning in an office environment when dealing with a confirmed suspected um, contact incident in the workplace? There is, in fact, a very good resource put together by um, Safe Work. Um, I'll actually bring up, bring that up on my screen now to show you what their recommendation is for um, cleaning if there's a confirmed case. So there is actually a checklist on the Safe Work Australia website that sort of brings you through the process of what do you do when there is a confirmed case, um, what processes you need to go through, um, which looks a bit like this. So part A is essentially if there is a suspected or confirmed case of COVID-19, what processes do I go through? And a lot of them are the kinds of stuff that we've spoken about. So that isolation, um, cleaning, uh, and, and looking at what kinds of, kinds of controls you've put in place. Uh, we recommend you go to the Safe Work website and uh, look it up for yourself. Um, there is a uh, what to do when someone is confirmed and not at work as well. Um, so once again, there, I, would, I would strongly recommend you, you do go to the website and, and look that up. Um, um, Michael, are you? We have we have gone over time. Are you? Um, do you want to wrap up now, and perhaps people can um, contact uh, and ask questions um, via email, or, or what do you want to do? Um, I will have maybe I have a very quick skim through and see if there's one or two big key ones, but then I guess we'll wrap it up. See if there's anything slightly aside or to the to the different um, difference. I can order them really quickly. Long nails recommendation is you should cut your nails and have short nails. Is the WHO recommendation there? Um, uh, what is the source or indicative persistence of SARS-CoV-2 and virus and different services? Um, 
I've, there is a, a list of the survival of SARS on surfaces, of, of SARS-CoV-2 on surfaces. It, it's in the um, takeaway pack um, that's on the Green Cap website. Um, paper is a tricky one, possibly. Uh, that, that gets asked a lot. The recommendation is try to reduce any handle items between groups, but the likely residence time on paper is low only because it's normally acidified bleach and has fungicides and other things in there. But uh, it's something that you should pro probably consider minimizing shared stationary. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is not very good at entering the body through skin absorption. It really is mainly um, mucous membranes, so eyes, nose, mouth, that kind of thing. Um, it doesn't really work in the same way through intact skin or, or broken skin from, from my understanding. Um, if you contract it and you recover, can you relapse? Uh, that's a tricky one there. That's actually ongoing for debate as well, and it depends on several things. So it's not an immediate answer for that. Um, uh, I, th I think that's most of the of the, the big ones. I might leave it there, but if there's any further questions, please do send them through. Um, please contact uh, GreenCap if there's if there's things that you are immensely concerned about. I will skip back to the uh, question slide that has the uh, takeaway check sheet on there that has some of this information in a rough and ready form it's available there with those tables in it um, but if you do have further questions or concerns you can contact us and we'll do our best to work with you and your workplace to make sure that you've done everything that is practically possible and I know it's a really tricky balancing act between working out what's possible what's achievable uh, and you know what's not going to drive you insane um, so we, we can certainly help you work through that process. Um, it's a tricky needle to thread. Uh, we've all done really well so far, um, but there's still a lot of unknowns. So relying on those principles and protocols is probably going to be um, the, the greatest bang for buck in terms of risk reduction. So thank you very much for, for attending everyone. It's been enormously interactive, which is always a good sign. Um, it's it's been really heartening to see that the kinds of questions are really good strong sensible questions rather than things like I think my dog is coughing and that kind of thing so it's been it's been tremendously useful I, I hope it's been useful anyway um, thank you very much for coming along today uh, I guess we'll wrap it up there and um, thank you Michael I have shared my screen I've got your workplace hygiene checklist up there and I have shared that link in the chat panel if people want to look it'll also come in the email later today um, I also just want to share a we have a, a coronavirus um, web resource page with um, lots of resources there's up-to-date analytics from John Hopkins University um, you can scroll through those to get um, more details and also you can you can drill down if you want to click on things to just highlight specific areas um, we've also got links here to resources by uh, different regions um, and we've also got some uh, this is if you've got kids at home uh, resources here they're all on that page and um, sorry just moving along to this one and some principles they're great so um, all sorts of principles there um, I've also sh um, will share a link in the email to um, a lot of our clients are using a COVID-19 reporting module and have been for a few weeks now so um, that helps um, identify and track the um, cases in the workplace if need be so um, as I said a, a recording will be sent later today um, I'd like to really thank Dr. Michael Taylor for joining us and sharing his um, expertise and for 
uh, Green Cap for allowing that. And um, uh, thank you very much, Michael. Um, I oh, hope thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, any questions, there'll be contact details for Green Cap uh, in the email as well, if you'd like to ask more. So thank you for joining us, everyone, today. Bye. Thank you. Bye.